0: Today's guest is Dr. Jim Taylor. Jim is a mental coach for athletes and he specializes in endurance sports like triathlon and cycling. He's the author of 19 books and the blog posts he's written have millions of views. He's a former world-ranked ski racer, national age group triathlon champion, and world age group triathlon medalist. Join us as we discuss the five main mental exercises for helping athletic performance, how to use the subconscious mind for success, and how to apply mental exercises and tools to improve daily life. Enjoy the show. Dr. Jim Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Great to be with you this morning. Awesome. So the first thing we want to talk to you about is overall, kind of give us some context of you know, what is triathlon? What is cycling? Why is it so hard? And why is the mental aspect of those things so important to maximize?
1: Yeah, so I've been involved in triathlon for about 20 years. I started off uh, with Ironman, uh, very long distance races, and what are called 70.3s, which is half the distance, about 70 miles, doing triathlon, swim, bike, and run. And then the last couple of years, I've been focusing on short course, um, national and international level. Uh, so triathlon is a, a great challenge because it's more than it's three sports. And you have to really push yourself and train for three sports rather than just, oh, all I have to do is run or all I have to do is swim or all I have to do is bike. And so that adds a new uh, another layer of complexity and interest, I think, to to triathlon and why I enjoy it, because um, I came from a running background uh, as, a, as a young adult. And so I was pretty good at that. But uh, building up my, my cycling, building up my, my swimming is, has been a great challenge. And one of the things that motivates me is getting better at things that I'm not good at. And so, so, so that that's sort of where I come from and how I approach triathlon and as far as the mental side, I mean, every sport, and I, I work not only in triathlon, but in all kinds of other sports in the business world, the medical field, military. Um, and for me, performance is performance. I don't care what the setting is. It requires many of the same psychological and emotional and behavioral, um, issues. And the fact is everybody will tell you that the mind is so important to any kind of performance and yet. Very little is done about it. And I can talk a little bit about, about what mental training in sports ecology is when you're, when you're ready.
0: Of course. Of course, that'd be amazing. Um, can you also give the listeners a little bit of context, too, about, you know, a little bit of your story? Because you grew up um, a very avid skier um, and, you know, you were your top, you know, 50, top 20 in the country, but it wasn't always that way. Can you describe how you fell into, you know, your love for sports psychology and, you know, what that, that first course you took in high school led to, you know, this expertise that you've done for years and years and years?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so I grew up skiing, and that turned into alpine ski racing in Vermont. And um, I went, when I was 13, I went to a boarding school in Vermont that was just for ski racers, for aspiring ski racers. And, and some of the best ski racers in the world over the last decades came from this school. And uh, when I entered the school, I was four foot nine, 89 pounds when I was 13. I was a very little guy. And I had no, I had no place aspiring to be the, among the best in the world. But I worked hard, I, I focused on my strengths, which was my smarts. And I'm a pretty good athlete. And um, I rose to top 20 in the nation, as you suggested. Um, I competed against the best in the world. But before you think I'm, I'm totally bragging, my motto, my sort of saying is um, I competed against the best in the world. But they weren't worried about me. And so uh, so I made it to I made it to quite a high level. But um, but I never made it to the very top, um, uh, mainly because I just didn't have the genetic capabilities for it. I just wasn't big enough and strong enough. And so, um, but when I was 17, I was really struggling mentally. I didn't have confidence. I got really nervous before races and I was performing really poorly and really inconsistently. And that summer I took a, a college class that I discovered at a nearby college that introduced me to a lot of the things that I do with, with the athletes I work with now. And I applied everything I learned in this class to my ski racing, um, positive self-talk, relaxation, uh, mental imagery was, was probably the biggest factor. And I took a quantum leap in my performances. Um, top 20 in the nation, as I said. Um, I made the bottom of the U.S. ski team. Um, but more than the results, what was most powerful for me was that when I got in the starting gate of a ski race that next year, I not only knew I was going to finish, I knew I was going to win. And I, admittedly, I didn't win all the time. But, but there was this just amazing improvement in my skiing, and it was due entirely to my mental preparation. So when I got to college, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, and I skied division one for them. Um, I took a psychology class. And there's the, a cliche, cliche that people become psychologists to figure themselves out. And, um, and you know, like people, people with um, with a history of, of depression in their family or, or, um, or schizophrenia or whatever, they go into those areas because they want to understand them as it plays out in their life. And again, I was a total head case, a mind job um, as a ski racer. And so again I got to Middlebury took an intro psych course and the way I put it is I didn't choose psychology it chose me. Like I did, like I I grew up in a very comfortable environment so I could have gone to medical school or business school or whatever but it it the psychology bit me and um that's been my life's path and my passion and my purpose um for the last many decades.
2: I love to hear that. Um you just talked a little bit about like the mental um mental exercises and whatnot that you were doing like in your time when you were starting to learn about all this something that i was really interested about and i wanted to hear from you about is um i think you have a unique perspective because you're both like you had the uh, the athletic perspective as well as like the (laughs) quote-unquote academic perspective so there's so many tangible metrics as an athlete um to like assess your physical strength right like what's your time like if you're a runner right like how much can you lift if you're a power lifter etc um what are metrics for mental strength?
1: Yeah, so Namish, that's one of the real challenges with the mental side is that it's basically trying to grasp on the fog. So as, as you suggest, if you want to see how strong you are, you go into the gym, you can see, you can feel the number of plates on the end of the bar. You can see your time on the track. Um, you, VO2 max, there's all kinds of metrics around endurance sports. So you have hard data. So it's easy to literally and metaphorically wrap your arms around it, embrace it, and and own it and, and, and really be convinced of the value of using these metrics to train to achieve your goals. The problem is that that we can't measure the mind directly. We're getting closer in some ways, but we're still a long ways away. And I'm still working on a USB port into the side of the head. Um, um, But uh, I I haven't killed any patients yet, but um, um, I haven't quite got there yet. And I'm totally joking about that, by the way. Um, So uh, so a lot of my work is about making the mind tangible. So, so I use the metaphor of mental muscles. So the mind is made up of muscles, just like the, the, the body is. And just like the body, mental muscles can be weak, they can be strong, and they can be injured. And there are five mental muscles that I focus on most. Um, motivation, confidence, um, intensity. And let me briefly explain intensity. So when I talk about intensity, I don't mean like mental intensity, like super serious. I mean this range of physical activation from really relaxed to sheer terror. And to somewhere between sleep in sheer terror, you perform your best. And it, yes, it depends upon the sport. And it depends upon the distance, for example, in triathlon. So if you're doing a super sprint, really high intensity, because it's it's 30 minutes all out full gas. An Ironman, well, if you're going, if you're like super intense, you're burning fuel that you're going to need at the end of that 140.6 miles of the race. and 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 so, yes, that's a physical component, but it also is a very powerful mental component. So motivation, confidence, intensity, focus, and then mindset. And when I talk about mindset, everybody is familiar with the growth versus fixed mindset thing. Not what I'm talking about. Um, When I talk about mindset, I mean, before you compete and while you're competing, what's going through your head? What are you thinking about? How are you approaching the competition? And so so I help athletes to strengthen those five mental muscles, Um, and I use that do that by having mental exercises in in helping athletes develop what i call a mental toolbox so so exercises the five main exercises slash tools that i use with athletes are goal setting um, mental imagery visualization uh, self-talk routines and breathing and there are many many more but i use this metaphor and this applies to cycling uh, of having getting a flat tire so you're out for a ride and you get a flat you pull over and you don't have a spare tube, you don't have a tire level lever and you don't have an inflator, either a CO2 cartridge or a pump.
2: Or Mm -hmm. you might have
1: them, but you don't know how to use them. In both cases, you're stuck and you have to call for help. But if you have those tools and you know how to use them, then you can fix the, the flat tire and get on your way. So this is not bike maintenance class, this is a metaphor. And so the idea here is that I help athletes develop a mental toolbox. So let's say on race day, they're getting nervous, bring out the relaxation tool, or they start to go negative bring out the positive thinking tool, or they're getting distracted, bring out the focus tool. And the great thing about a mental toolbox is it doesn't weigh anything. So you can have all kinds of tools in there and it doesn't weigh you down, but they can really help you get on your way. Um, So all these things are an attempt to make the ethereal aspects of triathlon and all all sports and all aspects of performance um, more tangible. Because the fact is triathletes, athletes, Students, business people, medical professionals, military, they're doers. They want stuff to do to get better. So I give them stuff to do.
2: Which one do you think is the most difficult to train? Or which one have you seen is like the most difficult to train, overcome? What does that look like?
1: Um, In terms of mental muscles or mental exercises slash tools? Mental
2: mental muscles, mental muscles.
1: Yeah, Um, I would say um, motivation and confidence. Because um, motivation, you know, there are things, it's, it's one of the hardest topics for, for, for me to deal with when I have an athlete come to me who's unmotivated, because the fact is I can give athletes tools they can use to motivate themselves on any given day. But the fact is to be the best athlete you can be, you have to get motivated, be motivated every day. And so a lot of what I do, well, especially with young athletes, parents bring their kids to me and say, my kid's not motivated, help them find their motivation." But I think they're totally missing this. It's like find the motivation like they lost it, like, oh, is it under my desk? Is it behind the TV? You know, that's not the way I think about motivation because I think sports, I think achievement of all sorts is highly motivated and it's engaging and it's interesting. So if I have an unmotivated tri- athlete, I don't think in terms of where's their motivation. I ask what's suppressing their motivation. And maybe it's they don't have a, 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 a they have an abusive coach or their parents put too much pressure on them or they're in the wrong sport or the wrong activity, or they just haven't found the metaphor I use is fuel. Like they haven't found what fuels them because you need to figure out why, when it comes to motivation, why you do these things. And if you, and if if it's for the, for the fame and the glory and the money, probably not a great motivator because it's probably not going to happen. But if it comes from an absolute love of the sport or loving to improve or or competing um, or hanging out with your buddies, that those are all different ways to help people figure out their motivation. Because if, if you can help people find their motivation, then motivation is not going to be a problem because they have to do it be, simply because it's who they are and it's what, what, what fuels them. So motivation is really important. And it's the foundation because without motivation, nothing else matters because you need to be willing to do the work. The second is confidence. And that's basically your belief in your ability to perform at the level you want and to achieve your goals. And confidence is something that takes a very long time to develop. It comes from experience. It comes from a lot of different exercises that I give people. But also, confidence can be lost so quickly. One bad race, one bad training day, it can be gone. And ultimately, especially in triathlon and endurance sports, you're, you're, you might have all the ability in the world to go the distance at a certain pace. But if you don't believe in that ability, you're not going go to go at that pace because you're afraid you're going to blow up at the end. So, everything I do, everything athletes do in their physical training, in their preparations, it's not just about getting themselves physically prepared to go the distance, but instilling them the belief that when they get to the line, they believe, they know they can achieve their goals. And and that is a building process.
0: I think as well, along with confidence, is having the confidence to adjust when things go wrong. Hmm. For example, and I'm sure you've had many a story like this. I competed in our, um, our conference race a couple you know weeks ago. And- 25, you know, meters in the swim got brutally kicked in the shoulder and it like popped in out and back in. And then I immediately was just thrown off everything, having a bad race. My arm hurt the whole time and my confidence was shattered. I had five minutes, like lost five minutes in the swim that I normally have. All this stuff came to be. What is the importance of visualizing and practicing even the worst case scenarios prior to competition and prior to being in the moment, like how... Why is that so important to do?
1: Yeah. So, so first of all, um, I'm going to swear here. Hopefully it's, it's okay. Um, it's a little, little bad word. Um, but the fact is that in, in um, triathlon, in so many aspects of life, you can't control everything. And my little saying is shit happens in triathlon. triathlon there's my swear word. Things go wrong, things out of your c- control. And so ideally what you want to do is prepare as well as you can to make sure you to control everything you can control and then have a plan when things go wrong. So, you know, the, you know having your shoulder pop out, that's, that's, a, that's not something you can just easily adjust to because you're in pain. But maybe you, you, your goggles get knocked off your face. Um, and the way you keep that from happening is you, um, you put your cap over your, the, your goggle strap, Whereas you see a lot of newbie triathletes with a strap on the outside. So if they, their goggles get kicked off, then they lose their goggles. So try to plan as much and prepare for if things go wrong. Because one thing about triathlon, never things never go according to plan. Something always goes wrong. You screw up your transition. You drop. At the recent World Championships, um, Taylor Nib, uh, the top American who came in fourth in Kona, um, she lost two water bottles. And yeah. I'm I'm amazed that that yeah. this happens at the pro level because they should they should have that figured out. Um, so for me, what I do with all my water bottles, I take my daughter's hair ties, you little know, stretchy things, and I hook them on, on a hook somewhere and I put them over the the nib at the, at the top of the water bottle. So, so bottom line, you can prevent a lot of bad things from happening by recognizing what can go wrong and then preparing for them, but also in your training. And what's so important about, about, um, mental training is that it's training. So let me do a little, little divergence here, um, for a second. So, um, All triathletes do mental stuff. So they do things to motivate themselves, to stay positive, to stay relaxed, to focus. But mental stuff isn't mental training. Just like going to the gym every three weeks and doing arm curls isn't conditioning. So what makes conditioning so effective is that it's comprehensive. It covers all the different areas of of fitness that affects performance. Um, It's structured. You don't just go to the gym and do whatever. Most people have some sort of program that somebody developed. Um, It's also consistent. They go in a couple of times a week, or if you're a serious triathlete, I mean, I train six, seven days a week. Um, Also, a lot of effort's put into it. So that's what makes any sort of program effective, such as conditioning. You get stronger by doing all those things. And what I do in my work is take that same approach with mental training, because I tell athletes, I want you to think about your mental training the same way you do your physical training. And so if, if they do that, then it's comprehensive, it's structured, it's consistent, and effort is put into it. And that's how you improve in anything. Just like in, in college, you guys are both in school at Ohio State. You don't just study every once in a while, do you? Or you don't, well, hopefully not. Um, <laughs> you, you don't, you don't to do well. You, you wouldn't do very well. Exactly, right. Yeah. Um, you don't just study one, one of your class subjects. You study them all, hopefully, so you can do well in all of them. And so the same applies to mental training. Now, the great thing about mental training is that it doesn't take a couple of hours a day to do. Whereas I spend anywhere from one and a half to four hours a day training for, for my triathlon life. Um, or you guys in school, you, you know, you're in school, either in classes or, or studying, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours a day sometimes. Um, fortunately, mental training doesn't take that long. You can incorporate a lot of mental training into your swimming, biking and running and lifting. And then maybe 15, 20 minutes a couple of times a week. Doing things like mental imagery, um, uh, practice, set it, working on your go- your goals for the week, things like that. So I, I so I, th- I think it's a really important way to think about that. I call it mental training for a reason, because you're training the mind, and so you don't just start doing something in a race. You prepare for it. You do it first in training, so when you get to a race, then you know how to deal with it.
0: You you say often train like you race, race like you train. And for somebody that might be overwhelmed, or they've never intentionally thought about mental training, just like how you have progression of overload with any sort of training, how do you slowly integrate these exercises? Um, and we'll get into kind of more details later. But how do we get? In, how do you start to progressively add them to your repertoire? Um, things like visualization, you talk about power words, etc. How are those added in a like conducive way for longevity?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you can't start doing it all at once. That's for sure. Just like with conditioning, if you if you start doing heavy lifting um, all the time r- right away without any background in lifting, you're going to be so sore that you're not going to be able to walk for a week or so. Um, and so it's really of what I what I do is I'll, I'll expose, and I think we'll talk about this shortly. I'll expose um, athletes to a list of different mental tools, and then from those mental tools, I'll say pick two for tomorrow. And, and and use them These the idea is that let's say in a race um you start to struggle physically and one of the things that one of the greatest fears with triathlon is that you're gonna bonk or you're gonna blow meaning you just run out of gas but the fact is there's been a bunch of research that has shown that whenever you think there's no fuel left in your tank there is fuel left in the tank and it's a whole evolutionary thing where our bodies have learned to keep stuff in Quick story. So this was studied by anthropologists who looked at um, primitive societies in in, um, in modern times. And they they they, they followed um, hunters who would t- track a gazelle on the Serengeti for five for four or five hours, 15, 20 miles away from their home. And they kill it. But they still had to get it back home to feed the family and pass on the genes. And so what evolutionally happened was that um, the our bodies learned that. It had to keep fuel in the tank to get home. So, and there's been there's been um, research in this in the modern day human performance lab as well, showing that that when at, when when cyclists, for example, think they have nothing left to do another time trial at the same pace, they're able to. It's just a matter of tapping into that fuel. And so, so bottom line is that if, if whatever you think you're going to have to do in training, excuse me, in in a race, you want to first do in training. And so so when you have that experience of of, of struggling at your, during a long bike ride and you use some of these mental tools to keep yourself going, then you become good at them. Because in the race, in that moment, when you start to fall apart um, and you get one of those flat tires that I mentioned earlier, um, it's, it's difficult to just sort of step back from the whole situation and go, OK, <clears throat> what's the situation here? What's my problem? What do I need to do here? Because you're, you're in pain, you're suffering. It's a horrible experience. You can't think clearly and rationally. So the only way is in training to have done, experienced these same things and practiced using these mental tools over and over again. So when you get in that same situation in a race and you start to struggle, you go, that's in my toolbox. Let me bring it up. Because you don't want that to take up more effort and cause more problems than you already have because you already have plenty because you're struggling.
2: Yeah, so, um, I, so I don't know if Jack mentioned to you before this or not, but, like, I know Jack has a pretty solid background in triathlon and whatnot. I don't at all. Like, I've never run a triathlon or done a triathlon. I mean, I have such a fascination with it. But um, so not to be the boring one, I guess, but I've seen a lot of um, parallels between what, like, you've kind of been talking about from, like, an athletic space and um, when it comes down to, like, I guess, like, day-to-day life for most normal people, whether that be like a job, school, et cetera. And so like what, like I wanted to get into the nitty gritty as kind of, we've been beating around the bush a little bit and what specifically have been kind of like those mental tools that you've been, you tell athletes to employ and like, how does that translate to like a presentation or an exam or something like that?
1: Right, right. So again, performance is performance. I, I, I work across many different platforms of, of performance in different venues. And, um, and really, what I found is that all, pretty much all the same psychological and emotional and behavioral issues are the same. Now, some, some achievement areas are more intellectual, so they're less physical. Some are much more physical. I'm Being a surgeon, obviously very physical, but it's more fine motor skills rather than necessarily endurance, although they certainly have, in some cases, you know, 10 hours of surgery on a very difficult case. Um, but, you know, presentation, preparing for an exam, um, putting together a project at work, um, speak, presenting to a board um, when, if you're in the C-suite, if you're way high up. All these things require many of the same things. And so it's, again, you know, being motivated to put in the work to study, to prepare for that exam, or to, to really know your material for a big presentation you've got in class. Because for me, the greatest test of your knowledge is can you teach it? Can you communicate it? either to a group, to an individual, or often in writing. And so I, a lot of my work as a, as, a, as a professional has been about developing my knowledge, not just having the knowledge available, but being so good at it, knowing it so well, that I can speak like here extemporaneously. I'm not looking at notes or reading, figuring out, or I don't have a presentation. And, um, and so being able to get so good at it. And so the way you do that is with most things is with practice. And so so uh, making sure you're motivated and, and tying in, let's say, oh, this is an important presentation, but I, I don't want to be up really late and I'd rather be having fun with my friends. But you know what? I really want to get a good grade so I can apply to grad school or get a good job or whatever it might be. Um, and then being confident. Public speaking, it is the number one fear for people. And I remember my, my senior year at Middlebury, I gave a talk to, um, to, my, uh, to Psych 101 class and there were like 200 students and I was terrified because I had never really given a Public talk before, and I, I still remember I was just just terrified. Um, and now I, I give talks all the time, and it's, I don't even think about it because I've done you know thousands of them. And and so making sure you're prepared and being positive, and you know one way you build confidence is through experience and through preparation. Um, you know, in terms of getting nervous, anytime you you, you you're putting yourself to the test, you're going to feel some anxiety. And that's also an evolutionary thing because we're putting our lives on the line now not our physical lives like on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago when we first officially became homo sapiens because it's a rival tribesman with a big club or a saber- through tiger but because it's, it's our academic life our self-esteem life our future goals life and so so being able to, using tools to, to be relaxed and so all these all these different mental areas these mental muscles that I talk about they, they apply to every every single area for sure. Um, and again, very quickly, given a presentation, great one, mental imagery slash visualization. And I, I use both terms. Most people use the term visualization. I prefer the, the phrase mental imagery or imagery because visualization places too much emphasis for me on the visual, the scene part of imagery. Um, whereas there's kinesthetic imagery, there's the feeling imagery, there's auditory, there's t- this tactile imagery. Um, but bottom line, imagery visualization is seeing and feeling yourself perform before you actually go out there. And I don't know a world-class athlete in any sport who doesn't use visualization imagery all the time. You watch the Olympics in the start area before they're getting ready. You see them, whatever their sport is, they're going through the motions. They have their eyes closed. And, and I've, I've done that with presentations uh, many times. And so, again, and, and I've done it with surgeons that I've worked with because, again, think, think, of, think of performance as a surgeon. And mm-hmm. think of the consequences compared to a triathlon. So, triathlon—you go, you lose, or you're slow. With surgery, the patient dies. And so, talk about pressure. Or the military—you know, you're, you're you're protecting your buddies, you're in your platoon, whatever it might be. And so, so the consequences can be much higher than certainly sports. Um, so, so the more you can prepare by using some of these mental tools to strengthen these mental muscles, when you actually get to the performance. Not only are you more likely to perform at your highest level, but because you prepared for all the things that can go wrong, then if things do go wrong, because as I said, shit happens in triathlon and in life, then you can pull out these tools to help you get a, keep going get on your way.
2: Um, so something that we were very fascinated with towards the beginning of this podcast was the idea of the flow state. And it kind of just is really... Um, coming back up in my head at least as we've been talking a little bit um and so I'm curious like we talked a little bit just about the um like tapping into that fuel that you think you don't have what does the self-talk look like from an athletic I mean you can choose whatever perspective like from an athletic perspective from like a boardroom perspective like what does that look like when you're like maybe like I haven't slept that much because I've just been up like really working all night whatever I have something in the morning literally like me for this podcast this morning, I was just like, oh, it's been a really rough week, like self-talk. You like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So especially if, if you're struggling in some way, you can't just say, oh, I'm having a great time here, or I love this, or this is so cool. You're not going to believe it. So you have to be realistic in what you say. But it's also a really important. One of the most powerful aspects of mental, of mental training and self-talk is g- getting the beliefs that, that you have control over your mind. Because for all of us as human beings, we sometimes feel like our mind turns against us. We, I, I use the metaphor, we go to the dark side, if you're a Star Wars fan. And, and the fact is that if you go to the dark side, you turn against yourself. And let's say you're in a triathlon where there are you know, 20 other people in your age group. And so 19 of them want to beat you. And if you also want to beat you, zero against 20, you have no chance. Whereas if it's one against 20, still not great odds, but everybody has those same odds and and you have to be on your own side and so 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 being aware of how you think um and 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 sort of how you approach triathlon or the other aspects of performance that is going to make a difference in what you do because the fact is that if you're if you're if you're in a triathlon or any activity you're thinking like oh my gosh this is not going to go well this is going to be terrible what happens then with that negativity confidence goes down motivation goes down Um, Either your intensity goes up because you get really anxious because you still have to give that presentation or it goes down because you physiologically given up You're focused. You're focused on all the things that are going to go wrong. And you get this really bad negative mindset and you have all kinds of emotions like anxiety and fear and frustration and disappointment. And you haven't even done it yet. So so it, it, it confidence is a muscle that has to be trained. Because not only does it have to be strong, but it has to be resilient. Because it's easy to be confident, for example, when everything's going well. Because the world is, is re- giving you information that, that your confidence is, worth, is worthy of having. But it's most important to be confident when things aren't going well. And so this getting back this idea of, of control, that you have the capacity to control your mind. Because, because I, I talk about this with my athletes all the time, that there, we have two parts of our minds. The unconscious and the conscious. And the unconscious, there are three parts of the unconscious. One is our primitive instincts. And we as human beings like to think that because we have this thing up here called the, uh, the c- cerebral cortex and up here the prefrontal cortex, that we're somehow, you know, these highly evolved beings that we're not like animals or we're not like cave people. But we still react to the world very much like we did on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago or 250 million years ago when we climbed out of that primordial muck as, li- as lizards or reptiles. And um, so when we get nervous before a talk or a triathlon, well, that is our survival instinct. The problem is our primitive brain doesn't know the difference between physical life or death back in the day and, 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 and psychological life or death in the, this presentation. Because if I, if, I, if I totally blow this presentation, then my future is over. So it becomes a life or death situation, even though it's not physical life or death. And so, so that's one powerful force of our unconscious. And the problem with the unconscious is that we don't know it's there. We don't know what drives it. Um, second one is emotional baggage. So I de- in addition to my what I call traditional mental training, I also deal a lot with, with what I call attitudes and obstacles. Because I find that a lot of people, they might have pretty good mental muscles, pretty good mental toolkit but they go into competitions or presentations or high stress situations um, with attitudes that interfere with their ability to perform. And some of the most common um, unhealthy attitudes that I find that I work with are overinvestment. Like, of course, you want to care. You want to be invested in whatever you're doing. But if you're overly invested, it becomes a life or death situation because you're putting your self-esteem, your self-identity on the line. Perfectionism. Perfectionism, it's like having to be perfect. But if you're not perfect, you beat yourself up, and fear of failure epidemic in our culture. Probably the number one reason why young people come to me—they don't know it. They don't know that's why they're coming to me, but that's the underlying issue. Because these days, it used to be if you got a B, you're solid. Now a B is like a monumental failure, in our in our achievement culture, um, uh, a preoccupation with results. So here's the problem: results matter. You don't get ahead in life by being a nice person. That, that might help. Um, you don't get ahead by working hard, although that's necessary. You get ahead by producing results, grades, SATs, GREs, MCATs, uh, sales numbers, um, time in, in, um, in, in a triathlon or whatever metric you have in other sports. Um, but by focusing on results, being preoccupied with results actually prevents you from getting those results because you're not focusing on the process. That is what you need to do to get the results. Um, and then expectations and pressure. I have to do well today. Oh my gosh, my, in, in my entire future is, 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 is this interview today. And that puts immense pressure on you, changes your physiology, changes your psychology, your thinking, your emotions, and it sets you up for failure. So, so a lot of my work is about clear, not the crap. And I, I use the metaphor of a weight vest. Imagine you're about to begin a triathlon or, and, um, somebody forces you to put on a 30 pound weight vest. How's that going to feel? Well, you're going to feel heavy, and how's that going to go in the swim? Well, you're going to sink like a stone, and and you can apply that metaphor to to other non-sport situations. And a lot of my work is about taking the weight vest off, because the weight vest is all those unhealthy attitudes that basically sets you set you up for failure. Because ultimately, when you, when you get it to the to the line of a triathlon, or you step up to the lectern to give that talk, or you go into the classroom for the exam, or you go to the OR for for um. For the the surgery, it's all about just you know you talk Nemesh about about flow, and flow is 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 not something that's an outcome. That's an outcome. You do a bunch of stuff to get to that flow state, and so so all the things I do in a way you know there are all kinds of terms for it. Flow, um, uh, uh, um, being in the zone for me, my phrase is prime performance, and it's all about basically going into a, a performance feeling like I'm totally prepared, I'm ready to go. I don't need to think about it really. I just do what I've trained myself to do because in a way, in many areas, thinking gets in the way um, because thinking can turn into judgment, evaluation, criticism, worry, doubt, all those things. but if if you've really prepared well for an exam, for example, you don't need to like think about like, oh, what's the answer here? It's just like it's 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 in your memory banks and it comes out. If you're prepared well for a presentation, you've practiced enough that you know the material so well you don't need to think about the presentation. You just give the presentation. And a triathlon, you don't need to think about what you need to do to go hard. You just go hard because your body you've prepared your body and your mind to do that.
0: Hey, sorry to interrupt. If you listened this far, I truly appreciate it. If you could do me a favor, please share the podcast however you found it, whether it was on social media, through a friend, or even myself. It would mean the world to us if you've been enjoying the episode. Take a few seconds just to share it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You're learning the mechanics so well that like you you mentioned, you're not thinking about what's going to happen. Um, And I also think going back to the subconscious, that if you train the subconscious or give it the right information, then it will make the better decision in the long haul, like a slow change to attitude, for example, if you train your body to do that. And one thing that I want your perspective on is I've been a massive believer probably for like three, four years now um, in listening to certain audio tracks or things to practice that mental psyche and preparation. For example, I have something called my master vision. It's um, a repeat of how I want my day to go, how I want my future self to act. And it's saying things as like a third person point of view of how I want to react to things, how I want to perform. And then I also listen to like pre um, in high school, pre match visualization, pre race visualization tracks as well. What do you think, um, where is the place for that sort of training? Is it something that athletes and individuals should create for themselves? Like how does that fit in, in kind of your structure of mental training in itself?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's this thing called the internet. You've probably heard of it. And the great thing about the internet, there is an infinite amount of information on just about everything. And so you don't necessarily need to hire me, for example, or reinvent the wheel. There's all kinds of, of MP4s, MP3s, recordings, talks, this and that, that, that you can learn about these things and use some of these things. So it doesn't really matter how you, where you get it. It's does, does it resonate with you and does it work with you? And so, but, but what's, what sounds like you're doing, Jack, is you're, you're, you're engaging in mental training. You're, ex- you're regularly exercising your mind. And, and a couple things about that. First of all, you're reprogramming your mind. So yes, these unconscious forces. And I mentioned primitive instincts. I mentioned um, emotional baggage. One other thing I forgot to mention is just mental habits. So think about a bad technical habit in your sport in swimming. You know, like a straight arm um, catch and pull in the water. If you practice doing that over and over again, what do you become good at? The straight arm catch and pull. And what's it going to come out in a race? Straight arm catch and pull. And you're going to be slower. And same thing with mental habits. If you're negative all the time, you get really good at being negative. So what's going to come out of race? Being negative. And so what you need to do is with with, um, mental habits is you need to retrain positive mental habits. And, you know, we never totally divorce ourselves from our primitive instincts because they've been wired into us for literally 250 million years of evolution. But we have this thing up here in the front of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's a big thing these days because all the research shows that, that it doesn't fully develop until your early 20s. And, um, and boys, much, uh, boys pre- prefrontal cortexes um, develop slower than w- women, than girls. And that's why boys tend to do stupider things than, than, than girls do. But let's not get into that too much. Um, but, but this capacity of the prefrontal cortex, what it's involved in is what's called executive functioning. And that's the ability to weigh risks and rewards, to look at long-term versus short-term consequences. For example, like, oh, I'm pre- I'm presenting with this thing. I'm a 15-year-old boy, and I'm, I'm presenting with this thing that seems like it'd be pretty fun in, for the next 10 minutes. But wait a minute, um, it might ruin my life. And unfortunately, 15-year-old boys, no offense to 15-year-old boys, but I was one one day. You know, we because of our lack of developed pre- prefrontal cortex, we often don't think about those, long distance, those long-term things. Um, also involved in, in considering options. Like, so I'm in this situation, what are my different options here? And ultimately the prefrontal cortex allows us to make choices, to make decisions that are in our own best interest. And this is what separates us from animals. Other animals do not have prefrontal cortices. They just react based upon their primitive instincts. So the way you control your primitive instincts is by being able to activate your prefrontal cortex and be able to go, instead of just doing this, say, okay, wait a minute, let me let me consider the implications here. What are the consequences? What's the best choice? And then taking um, making the good choice. And um, and I make a, a me- I use another metaphor to make things these more tangible is forks in the road. And I talk about athletes all the time with this. That is the bad road and the good road. The bad road is be negative, be unmotivated, get nervous, be distracted, be afraid. The good road is be motivated, confident, relaxed, focused, and courageous. Nobody chooses to go down the bad road. They go down the bad road because of primitive instincts, emotional baggage, and um, and uh, bad mental habits. So, so much of my work and so much of, of mental training is about helping athletes and people see the fork in the road, because if they don't see the fork in the road, they're not going to be able to take the fork in the road, and then taking the good road. But the great thing about the good road is it's self-reinforcing, meaning they it, it feels good to take the good road, and good things happen when you take the good road. So, so this ties back to this idea of being able to control your mind. And it seems, this is a weird thing. It's like your, your, your mind is controlling your mind. But again, this idea that there are different parts of our mind and often the unconscious parts don't help us. So it's using the prefrontal cortex to help us make good choices to take the good road that will better prepare us to be successful
0: so um jim i'm so glad you brought up executive functioning because it's something i've been you know researching and into a lot lately um due to the fact that i have adhd and it's been like an interesting um dynamic for me to look into as well um and going away from the athletic side for a second is it's pretty easy to or at least easier at least in my opinion when you enjoy sport when you're doing something out of enjoyment to push through those mental barriers for the physical benefits that you're receiving it feels good you feel the endorphins everything's positive but when you're, you know, sitting at your computer, you're doing homework you're doing these extremely dulling things that are difficult for anyone and then thic- more difficult for those with different, you know, um, mental capabilities or disorders, whatever right you what they call them. them. Exactly. Um, and so what are the ways to possibly get around that or use these tools in those settings? Because, you know, I'll sit on my computer and you mentioned executive functioning, weighing what the most important task is, is extremely difficult for me or trying to get myself to say, you know, this is hard, but the reward is on the other side of getting through, you know, the first 10 minutes, getting into that zone and and then enjoying the work in in your experience, you know, being an entrepreneur and working in the business world as well. um, What are ways to combat those difficulties?
1: Yeah. So one is you need to have a reason to do it. And so it's always good,
0: really valuable to
1: tie back to when you don't feel like doing it, go like, wait a minute, why am I here? Why is this important to me? Because the immediacy of this is really unpleasant. And this applies to training as well, as well as sitting on a, at a, behind a computer. If, if, you, know, you have to finish this paper or you have to prepare for this exam. Is if you've got a good reason to do it, that's your fuel and that can help. Um, second of all, especially with people with, with learning differences, is, is having tools they can use in terms of structuring their time, structuring their environment, like, like creating a simple environment that doesn't have distractions, um, putting your phone away, um, all these kind of things, structuring your environment is really, really valuable for you to be able to stay focused on what you need to do. You also n- need though, to recognize your reality, like what are your limitations? And so structure your time in a way that will, will take, be respectful of that. So you're maybe you're not going to be somebody who can sit down for three hours and just grind. Maybe all you can do is put in 25 minutes and you need to take a 10 minute break and run around the block or listen to music or check your social media or whatever it is. But the important thing is to make sure that you're, you're doing things that are helping you rather than hurting you. And this goes again to the fork in the road, prefrontal cortex executive functioning. And it goes back to your, your, your reason for doing it. And so, you know what? This is going to be hard. And by, simply by saying these things, you're preparing yourself this to be hard. So it's not like a shock. This is going to be hard. These next three hours, I need to put in the time to prepare for this project at school. And but um, the reason I'm doing it is because this is really important to me. And even if you hate the class, the fact is in life, you're going to be presented with a lot of things that you hate to do, whether it's, you know, you're starting off the lowest level in some kind of job and it's a lot of grunt work, or you become a parent and you have to change a diaper or stay, stay up all night while your kid is crying, but you signed on for it and And one of the most important things for me um, in working with young people in, in many different areas of, of achievement is is getting this belief like if i if my if one of my values is quality, and if I realize that the hard work will pay off, then that gives me a reason. And that can help get you through those things. instead of just going to the, to the down the bad road of oh my gosh, this' is boring, this sucks. I want to go out with my friends, g- because then you're done. And, but it's really hard because the bad road in many ways can be very attractive. But in the, this goes back to executive functioning. Long term, not the road to be on.
0: That's extremely interesting. Uh, the one thing that I want to expand on here is that in order to see, you know, that second-rate consequence that, you know, maybe I don't feel good in an hour after doing the work, but I know that it's towards my goal, in order to have that uh, feeling or that thought in your head, you need to be brought back to some presence of reality. And um, one of the major issues of students in general, but those with ADHD and, and young people as well, is that they get sucked into these distractions and they use them as dissoci- um, dissociative tools as well. And so, for example, you start watching YouTube because you don't want to do work and you don't even think about. The fact that you're you have this burning desire this motivation because you're getting dulled by all these different um over stimuli and whatever so what are ways to bring somebody back to presence and to ground them to continually remind them of you know that long-term vision or what they actually want to do yeah and even
2: outside of that actually um bouncing off of jack a little bit not only in a distraction sense but even in like a um freaking out sense, like a panic sense, maybe like something does go wrong in triathlon. Like, how do you ground yourself in a moment like that?
1: Right, right. So, um, so, so two issues there. Um, first, in terms of grounding yourself, um, that comes from preparation and, and having a plan that things are going to go wrong. And so ha- identifying as much of the things that can go wrong. And so that when they do go wrong, you have a plan to deal with it. So so for example, um, I've worked with a number of swimmers, um, or triathletes. Who have panic attacks in the swim, and so initially they're like f- totally freaking out and they're paralyzed and they have to go grab a kayak. And but in, in working with them, I give them tools. So in that moment, there are things they can do to ground themselves, to focus, to breathe, to relax their bodies, and not let that 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 instinctive survive survival fight or flight, which what what anxiety or panic in the water is, um, to take take them over. So again, it goes back to preparation and recognizing what can go wrong and having a plan for what can go wrong. And getting back to your question, Jack, um, in terms of technology, I, I wrote a book on the psychology of technology and its role with uh, with people in general and with young people. And I'm, I'm a huge uh, believer in the power of technology, but also very aware of the dangers. And But the fact is, the train has left the station. We're not going back to the pre-internet age. So it's not a matter of never used your phones or get a flip phone. Although I have to say, I always marvel when I see young people who have flip phones and I really respect that, but it's very rare. And so, you know, talk about primitive instincts and also, for example, like phones, um, you know, big tech spends billions of dollars a year on what's called persuasive technology and devoted to hooking us. And, and we are all drug addicts to varying degrees and to our technology and young people especially, because the brains aren't fully developed and the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed, so they're just sucked in. And so one of the greatest things that, that can be done, first of all, is obviously for, for, for parents to set limits for their kids because their kids often don't have the capacity, but, but also being able to step back from it. Because like you say, even, even on YouTube or Instagram, sometimes I'll get sucked in a black hole where I'm just sitting there and it's all fun and entertaining stuff, but it's also pointless, useless stuff for the most part. And so, so being able to have some dominion, some control over your devices, because really it's not control of your devices, it's control over you. And if you, and beforehand, if you can step back and go, what kind of relationship do I want to have with my technology? And what role do I want it to play in my life? Because it's definitely a place for it. Technology is incredible. I love technology, but unfortunately these days it's become a rabbit hole. And so, you know, I don't have any magic prescriptions here, and this might be, a, you know, another another podcast to talk about. But, but really, just stepping back and being saying, like, like where am I at with my technology? What role do I want to play? As I said, and then what are some things that I can do very actively to make sure that it, they don't, it, it doesn't become the priority? And it might be, you know, there are certainly it's sort of ironic that there are apps for not using technology, um, which is a bit of a paradox there, but, um, but you know, there are apps, you know, getting somebody else to take your phone, uh, put it definitely if you, if you need to work, put it in the other room and a lot of people have smart watches, take your watch off if it, cause it's constantly pinging, you're going to be, what happens is you create this anticipatory awareness. So you're, 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 th- you're aware of, you're thinking about the, a potential ping or vibration. And, and, and so it doesn't even have to have ping. It's just your awareness, like, and so you have to get all that stuff away. And again, it goes to managing your environment and, and having the self-control to manage your environment, um, comes from focusing on your priorities, your long-term goals and so on. And so, so sometimes you might need to print something out above your computer that says, you know, your future is on the line or, or something, some reminder. Because in that moment when you're, you know, I'll just look at my look at YouTube for a minute or two, or TikTok for a minute or two, and it's like, and then you get sucked into. it. But if you if you're about to go there and you go, oh my future, fork in the road, which road do I want to take? Which road one is in my best interest? And you know, if you're younger, if you're in high school or younger than that, you have parents who who take away the phone. But in college, or as an adult, you're on your own, and so you have to be you you have to have the wherewithal to have that awareness to consider your options, to make those choices that are healthier for you.
0: I completely agree. I'd say the, the best, just like any, because in, in some capacity is a vice um, for, for many individuals. Like any vice, the best way to get rid of it is to eliminate it completely and have those apps off your phone. That's one thing that I have you know, done extremely well. For example, Instagram, we use for reaching out to guests. It's easy to go to a DM and then you get off and you're like, wait, why was I even on this in the first place? And then you like go down the rabbit hole on accident because you're on your phone. You have an expectation of like, this is the place where I do this thing and I waste time on this thing. And so even just putting it on my desktop, I'm more so doing work on my desktop is the place where I do work. And I want to even transition to environments because um, you've talked about subliminal messaging environments, having the smiley face somewhere, having um, even writing on your arm if you're in the arrow bars. Um, having, you know, stuff on the handlebars as well. How do you prime your environments um, for work and other things, even in your own life to make sure that you're, you're doing those and making that, uh, those, that good road choice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, reminders are really valuable. And so, like I said, put up a sign that, that's, that has your goals or as a reminder make, simply make, make a good choice. Or something like that. Um, there's been um, some fascinating research um, in endurance sports, a lot, mostly in cycling, where they found, for example, you mentioned smiley face. So they'd have a cyclist in an, on an indoor trainer, and they'll have a big monitor, and they'll have uh, have them do a time trial. Let's say like a, a like a 20 mile time trial indoors, and um, and they would. Um, keep track of the, of the performance data and in cycling, what's called wattage or power. And so they, they would then flash subliminal smiley faces and a subliminal means where it's flashed so quickly on the screen that we're not consciously aware of it. So we don't consciously say, see, there's a smiley face there, but our unconscious sees it. And do you know what happens? People can go harder. They can persist more longer in significantly where they can go significantly faster, simply because there is this, um, this smiley face popping up. And in my little training cave, um, when, I do, when I do indoor um, cycling, I printed out a smiley face and I taped it up up there. And that's a reminder. So every time I look up, I see it. And that has, that has a subliminal unconscious impact. But another really powerful tool, so there's sort of the unconscious stuff, but there's also the conscious stuff that has a powerful impact. So for example, smiling. Smiling is this incredibly powerful mental tool that nobody thinks about because we smile when we smile. But smiling has incredible psychological, emotional, neurochemical, and physiological effects on us because we're fundamentally physiological beings. So it's hard to think and feel down when we're going like this. And smiling is a motor skill. It's going like this. And this is a great exercise to try. Sometimes you're in traffic and you're really frustrated or you're just frustrated with something or you're angry about something, force yourself to smile. It's hard to th- stay that way because your body is sending you a different message. Because when we smile, two things happen. First of all, as we grow up in our lives, we're conditioned to know, to learn that that's, when we smile, life's good, we're happy. Also, there's been some fascinating brain research that has shown that when we smile, it releases endorphins. It releases serotonin and dopamine, meaning, which are our, our happy, our happy um, hormones and um, our uh, stress-reducing and our pain killing hormones so so simply doing like something like that i build this into my training so toward the end of a workout or the end of a race i force myself to smile and does it relieve the pain does it make no of course not but does it does it turn it down like one or two percent because especially in endurance sports it's it's the athletes who can endure the pain the longest the most pain the longest is the ones who are successful and so you know you mentioned power words. So one thing that happens toward the end of, of, of a hard tri- workout and training or a difficult triathlon race is that our body starts to rebel against us. We start to feel out of control. So if we have power words, words that make us feel strong, then, then that can, that boost us. So for me, um, I've got two phrases I used, um, dig deep and finish strong. So late in a workout, late in a race. I'm, I'm constantly saying that myself, dig deep, finish strong. And because in a way it's a battle between your, your, your um, evolved brain and your primitive brain, because your primitive brain, and this, this especially ties in with, with endurance sports like triathlon, um, our primitive, we, we have evolved to want to avoid pain at all costs. Because up until relatively recently, if we were experiencing pain, what was likely to follow? Death. And our, 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 our primitive brain has, is an incredible mechanism for ensuring our survival because that's, that's what it's about. That's what our primitive brain is entirely designed to do. Unfortunately, what works well in the Serengeti 250,000 years ago doesn't work so well in 2023 triathlon or school or career or whatever. And so it's a matter of resisting those things. So having these power words gives us a sense of control like I'm strong. I had um a female triathlete um uh, her her key phrase was Captain Marvel. If you know the the female Captain Marvel's superpower. And so coming up with a couple of words it has an effect on us. And so here's a very here's a very simple fork in the road. Um and I I I didn't discover this with research. I discovered this in my own triathlon training. I was doing a really hard indoor workout on my bike and it was um it was 4 by 6 minutes at, at 90% of 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 my threshold. And what I noticed the the, the first um, The first couple of times of these intervals, the last minute, my power, my performance would start declining because I was getting tired. And then all of a sudden, after the second one, I had this epiphany. I said, "You know what? I'm choosing to do this. I'm choosing to to suffer here, to work, work really hard, to be in pain." And so I I said that that at that last minute of the of the next interval. Do you know what happened? My numbers went back up, and I used it the rest of the time, for the rest of the workout. Numbers went back up. I used it dozens upon dozens of times. When I start to hurt. And again, when you start to hurt, your primitive brain starts to take over and it naturally wants you to slow down. And I, I use this with the, 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 uh, the professional triathletes and other athletes I work with. Simply saying, I choose to push my limits. I choose to push my limits. And a couple of things there. You're engaging your prefrontal cortex because you're taking, you're seeing the fork in the road and you're making the choice. That also sends a powerful signal to your primitive brain that we're not going to die here. I'm in control. I've got this. So the primitive brain can go, oh, cool. Okay. I don't need to, I don't need to pipe in and get the whole survival instinct going and get you to slow down. And so simple things like that can make a huge difference in your ability to endure. And that, and that's, um, in in triathlon or sitting at your desk doing some grind of a paper that you really don't want to do, but I'm choosing to make this the best paper possible. Not because I love the subject, but because I, I, because I want two things. I want to do well in the class. And I want to develop the habit that whatever I do, I do it to the best of my ability. Because at the end of the day, that's all you can do. It might be an A. It might be um, you know, getting the job. It might be winning, winning triathlon. It might not be. But at the end of the day, that all you can do is give it everything you've got. And if things don't work out, you don't get the result you wanted, you, are you going to be disappointed? Absolutely. But you're not going to have regrets. And now we're, if you don't mind, I'd like to get into a little bit of philosophy here because this is deep, powerful stuff. So one of my most profound values is regret, both professionally and personally. So what's regret? It's wishing you had done something differently. And one of my most closely held life goals is to be on my deathbed when I'm 156 years old and say to myself, you know what? Life didn't always turn out the way I wanted because that's life, but I have no regrets. Every opportunity I took, every shot I went for, Wayne Gretzky said, I missed 100% of the shots I didn't take. You want to go through life and everything that presents itself, whether it's, it's an athletic opportunity, a school opportunity, a career opportunity, an asking a girl or a guy out opportunity. You want to take the shots. Because you can't score if you don't take the shot. And almost always after, if I didn't take the shot, this is from when I was younger, and I learned this when I was probably about eighteen or nineteen. And oddly enough, it came from being terrified of asking girls out. and And I realized I was going to never get a date if I didn't ask. But why don't people ask? Why don't people give their best effort? Why don't people take the risk? Because they're afraid of failing? And if you can, Let go of that fear of failure and value just taking the shot. Then two things happen at the end of your life or at the end of the day, at the end of a a, a triathlon season, your college career, whatever it might be. You're going to look back and go, yeah, I left it all out there. And the reality is if you leave it all out there, you're going to have some level of success. It might not be Nobel prize or playing Carnegie hall or winning Kona but you're going to become successful as successful as you can be. But there's nothing worse than looking back and going, ah, I wish I'd gone for it because you can't, you can't, re- there's no redos in life. Now there, you can, there are do's in life. So you can, you can, you can have regret this time, but, but learn from it and go, you know what, next time I'm taking my shot. Because the fact is what prevents us from taking our shot is failure slash rejection. And that ties in with our primitive instinct. Because what's failure? It's a little bit of death. So that's our primitive instinct kicking in. But we're not going to die physically. And in most cases, certainly in most of your audience, if, you, if they fail in, one, in some way, they're going to be okay. They're going to survive. And not only that, they'll continue and thrive and find success. But one of the great gifts you can develop, it's not a gift, it's something you work toward, is to let go of that fear and be willing that everything that presents itself, just throw yourself into it because if you don't, the chances of success are almost nil. And if you do guarantee success, no, because shit happens in life, but it's your only chance. And that comes, for, that's whether it's making money, um, accolades, personal goals, um, relationships of any sort across the board. Sorry, guys, I went on a bit of a rant there, a rant there but I, I feel so deeply about that. It's so powerful for me.
0: That was incredible. You absolutely put on a the clinic there. Uh, before we wrap, I want to kind of ask you to give some of our listeners homework, both for my – I'm on the club triathlon team at OSU, so for both of them to implement when I send them this episode, but also for anyone, most of our listeners are, you know, 18 to 25 or so, Um, what are like the more – one or two simple things that they can start to implement, you know, in the coming weeks um, to start to see a little bit of that progress um, in their mental game?
1: Yeah. yeah. So I, I, for me, it starts with knowing your why. And this is, this is what fuels you. So if, if you can understand why you do something, then you can create, create an environment that supports that. And so, so sit down and ask yourself for whatever kind of situation it is, whether school or triathlon, you know, why am I doing this? And so am I doing it because I want to see what my limits, see how I can push my limits or I want to see how much I can improve, whatever it might be. And so, so that is a really great exercise to sit down and do. Um, the second thing is um, be aware of what you say to yourself. It's because our self-talk, it basically determines what we do and how we feel and ultimately what we think. So simply just sort of get a little catalog. Whenever you realize you're thinking about something like, oh, I'm, getting, I'm really critical of myself or I'm, I'm I'm being mean to myself or I'm not supporting myself and and so you get a sense of because you can't change something if you're not aware of it. and that's that's part of that making the unconscious conscious. so so just becoming aware of how you think positively and negatively, supportive, uh, uh, discouraging, ally versus enemy. Also, notice when you get nervous in anything. that's a really powerful sign that you perceive a situation as a threat. And again, it's the whole evolutionary survival fight or flight thing. And again, it might be a social situation. It might be getting ready to get into a, go into the water in a triathlon. It might be getting ready for an exam. And, but a lot of times we get nervous and we shouldn't. There's no need to get nervous because it's not, it's not a life or death situation. So the, the, the first part here is just really being aware of how you think, about your physiology, and your, the emotions you experience. And then, then later on, figure out like why. Because a lot of my work is about figuring out the why behind that. Like, why do I get nervous? Why do I go negative? And then, using some tools, um, come up with some power words. Um, remind, put put some reminders in your around your room, or if you're a triathlete, on your bike, um, or on on your right on your hand. So some little cues that can remind yourself: breathe, relax, stride, reach. Um, go charge, bring it, attack, full send, full gas, whatever little power words or phrases that you can connect to. And then, um, another really big one is surrounding yourself with like-minded people. This is this is, this is something that's really valuable being on triathlon club, being in a study group, having people, it, cause it's hard doing it alone. But if you have other people saying you can do this, or let's get out there and do this, then you support each other. And that can make a really big difference. So, so pulling this all together, it's about awareness of what drives you, good road, often, what's, often the bad road, and then using some of these tools. And, and, and people can go to my website, and, uh, my, my triathlon category, um, under my blog, where um, I have an article. I think it's called Mental, uh, Mind Hacks for Mental Marginal Gain. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a list of all these very simple tools you can use that can, simp- that can change the way you think. And you know we use this, the phrase hacks, mind hacks, um, and different kinds of hacks. And this is a way you can you can um, very simple things that can change the way you think, the way you feel, and ultimately how you behave and you perform.
2: Thanks for the thanks for the list. Um, so just wrapping up, uh, everyone that comes on the podcast, we ask them two questions. So the first one is, what are two to three pieces of content? this can be like books, movies, television, articles, um studies maybe for your case um that have changed your perspective.
1: Oh gosh. Uh, I I don't think I can answer that. Um I I I I tend to be very self-generating. I don't um I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't read a lot of other people's books. Um, I, I sort of come up with my own ideas because I think that's what makes me unique. And that's what, that's sort of my, my brand, if you will. Um, so I, I really can't say, come up with anything in particular, uh, except my own ideas. So, um, I sort of failed on that one. I apologize. That's okay. Yeah.
2: yeah. We'll take this moment, shameless plug. Okay. Uh, if you want to tell people where you can find your books and then yeah, Jack yeah. will get yeah. to you with the last question.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, like everybody else, I have a website. It's drjimtaylor.com, drjimtaylor.com. I've got all the books I've written there. Probably 95% of of everything I've ever written is on there on my blog. I've written thousands of blogs, blog posts, and I've got different categories from technology to parenting to business to triathlon to uh, other sports and so personal growth. And so um, there's just a ton of information on there, some podcasts um, that people can learn about what I do and not have to cost anything.
2: Oh, and also, awesome. very, very
1: quickly, I'm also on on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm not on TikTok or Snapchat, no.
0: We'll make sure to put uh, the links to you know your website and everything in the description as well. Um, but the last question for you today, Jim, is if you could go back and give one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would it be?
1: Yeah, um, very similar to what I said, don't live in fear. Um, put yourself out there, open yourself up. Um, a lot of the work I do with athletes and other high achie- achievers is um, is just basically removing the obstacles and just being, being being making yourself vulnerable. Emotional vulnerability for me is the heart of of humanity, both in terms of just connection with people, how you feel about yourself, as well as your ability to perform your best. Because when you go to the line for, for swim or you sit get ready get behind a lectern to give a presentation, you're making yourself incredibly vulnerable. But the more you vulnerable you can be. The more you can, you, and you see me, op- I'm opening my arms, I'm making myself vulnerable. And so think about this on the Serengeti 250,000 years ago. If I open my arms like this to a rival tribesman with a big club, I'm taking a risk because he might pummel me. But you know what? Maybe he just wants a hug. And so what, when you open yourself up literally and metaphorically, you allow, you allow who you are, your authentic self, to just come out fully. Plus, you welcome people into your life. And when I was young, I was very close, I was very defended. And, and so I was never able to fully express myself and I kept people away. And ultimately, yes, all the successes in the world, all the money in the world, wonderful stuff, but it's the connections, it's the relationships with other people and also with yourself that matters the most. So, you know, I wish I could travel back in time and tell myself that when I was 15, but um, it took me a lot longer, but I finally got there and figured it out and it's a journey and we figured it out, we figure out at different times, but it's better to do it the sooner the better.
0: Dr. Jim Taylor, thank you so much for coming on today. I, I found your stuff, you know, just a week and a half ago and I went down a rabbit hole of looking into your your content, your videos, um, a couple of collaborations you've done on YouTube, et cetera, um, you know, grateful enough to be able to just send you an email and you got back to me, you know, within a day. Um, So it, I'm so happy that we were able to have this conversation um, from my natural curiosity um, of endurance sports and the mental side of it as well. So yet again, I just want to say how much I appreciate you coming on today.
1: It's been a great pleasure. You guys have asked great questions. And um, as you can tell, I have a tremendous passion for sharing my ideas. And, uh, you know, one of my goals is just to help people become the best versions of themselves.
0: Awesome. Well, that's it for today's episode of Project Alchemy. As always, guys, peace.